Welcome to this week's energy show. Now this week, we're talking about the new electric utility in our area, Silicon Valley Clean Energy. And we're getting insights from one of their founding board members. So it's my pleasure to welcome Howard Miller. Now Howard wears three hats. He's the mayor of Saratoga. He's the chairman of the board of Silicon Valley Clean Energy. And he's also an adjunct professor at West Valley College. And I've known Howard for almost 20 years, both as a friend and as a customer. And so it's no surprise that he's passionate about solar and battery storage and cutting back our electrical usage. So welcome to the show, Howard. Hey, thanks for having me, Barry. All right. Well, we'll dive right in. We've talked about community choice aggregation utilities or CCAs on previous energy shows. But why don't you fill me in a little bit about our local CCA, Silicon Valley Clean Energy, and how they got started? Yeah. Silicon Valley Clean Energy, I would say, has been the second wave of CCAs. There were a couple that forged ahead and fought legal battles with PG&E, and everybody figured out, yeah, they were authorized under state law. So they blazed the path for us. What we did in Santa Clara County, Mountain View, Sunnyvale, Cupertino, and the county got together and did a review of energy load and demand for the entire county, which became the basis to form the CCA. And the CCA picked up everybody that we could within the county, so the unincorporated county, all the smaller cities. San Jose, they wanted to go on their own. And you know, Palo Alto and Santa Clara have their own municipal utilities. But the remainder of us, we all got together and we formed our CCA. And it's based on a couple basic principles, which is we can get clean energy and deliver it to our customers cheaper than PG&E can. And we can have money left over to invest in local programs and local resources. And we can do it all by buying carbon-free resources. And, you know, it's been five years since we started with that vision. It's been almost four years since we started operation. We buy and provide $300 million worth of energy a year, and we've put $100 million in the bank. All the while, our rates have been somewhere between 1% and 6% less than PG&E on every rate schedule. So that kind of makes sense. That's what the benefits of the communities are. You're cheaper, you're cleaner, and there's extra benefits that go back to the communities. But you know, one of the questions, this is kind of not intuitive, is you got the same wires that PG&E installed and maintains, but you know, where do you buy the power from? And how does that power you know, that you buy separately get into somebody's house in our communities? Yeah, so PG&E, they own the distribution network. And many of us are hopeful that PG&E will focus their energy on upgrading that network to be more safe and more reliable. And so what do we do as a CCA, right? We buy power and everybody enters into the day ahead market, spot market to deal with peak demand and stuff like that. But we also invest in long-term projects, solar projects, renewable projects. And we also import hydro from the Pacific Northwest, which has obvious economic well, maybe not obvious to everybody, but there are economic advantages. In good years, there's an awful lot of rain in Washington and Oregon, and hydro is pretty plentiful there. We also invest in projects. We have within the state of California, we've entered into contracts for solar plus storage, four hours of battery backup so we can time shift our solar. We've entered in contracts for wind and even new geothermal being built in the mountains in, in California. 
We've also contracted for power out of California. We tried to contract for a wind farm in New Mexico, the wind capital of America, and a dedicated transmission system to bring it all the way to California. Those are a little bit more crazy, but, you know, the wind starts blowing in New Mexico when we need the power here in California. So it made a lot of sense from an engineering and economic perspective. Okay, so basically you're using the existing, in most cases, the existing PG&E grid, and so you put power onto that grid, and then the power comes off the grid in Silicon Valley. You know, it may be different electrons, but they're all fungible. It doesn't matter where they came from. Right. You're just counting the electrons. Okay, that's cool. But So now let's talk about the money. So if power costs, say, two or three cents a kilowatt hour, if you're getting from a solar farm or hydro or wind, and it costs another few cents to transmit over PG&E's grid, how come the average rates in Silicon Valley are you know, still up around 30 cents a kilowatt hour? You know, I think the whole rate system and the CPUC rate setting system, be it for water or gas or our electricity, is so complicated. Us mere mortals, you know, you're MIT, I'm Stanford. Apparently, we're not smart enough to understand this. It is a a very interesting system. We, through clean energy, are able to cut out some of the PG&E overhead and Again, it's an essential service for the community, and so we don't have shareholders to pay. So we can save some money there. But PG&E has found many ways to extract money from its customers, and I'll just leave it at that. All right, right. Well, you're being diplomatic. And, you know, the answer to your question as to why, you know, the Stanford and the MIT guys who didn't understand this is because we're engineers, and we didn't take the poli-sci courses, but it's really a political and a legal and a lobbying issue. And you're being polite, too. Yeah, that's unusual for me. I'm usually a little bit more upfront. So here we go. So let's get into my least favorite freaking four-letter acronym, PCIA. Explain what a power charge indifference adjustment is. It is a way for PG&E to shift the cost of their financial mistakes onto those who are seeking a better way to get power. Howard, Howard, I want to write that down. That's the best explanation that I ever heard of what a PCIA, that's really good. That's really good. All right, keep going. So what PG&E did was, right, there were mandates in the state. And again, they're a utility with incentives that aren't necessarily aligned with the world, the state, or their customers. The state said, get some renewable power. PG&E went out and entered into long-term contracts some at some very unfavorable terms for some pretty poor projects. And they don't care because they just get to pass the cost on to us, the consumers. And then when we get together, and the CCA movement is large, it's over 10 million of the 40 million people in the state of California, we leave PG&E. Well, they screamed, wait a minute, we have all these stranded assets. And so there is a, a formula, a scheme by which PG&E can charge us for our share of those stranded assets. It's not a transparent system. All the data goes to the CPUC. There's two outside people who get to come analyze the data, but they're under NDA, so you can't even tell what it is. And the numbers vary wildly. There's no way to forecast or predict what these numbers are going to be. But even with this huge headwind, this huge tax, this huge levy put on us due to PG&E's incompetence, if you ask me, we're still able to. Our electricity plus the PCI rate is 
still less than PG&E's cost for energy. And that's a testament to your ability, Silicon Valley Clean Energy, to run a business and also just demonstrates once again how ludicrous it is to let PG&E operate in such a poorly regulated fashion. And as you said, they're dumping their mistakes and all their extra fluff and overhead onto ratepayers, and they're continuing to do it. So that's and, that's... and let me give you one farther one. You might not have thought this one, right? So a bunch of people get into RCCA, which is great. The law allowed that. But larger companies are allowed, if they'd like, to enter into direct access contracts. And so they could leave Silicon Valley clean energy. However, we are responsible as a load-serving entity to acquire power, not for tomorrow or next week, but for years to fulfill our obligation. And if large loads leave us, we do not have the ability to charge them a PCIA. Those assets become stranded and they stay with the CCA. And it's interesting that PG&E as a regulated monopoly has this extra protection. Again, it was a political decision. These were not engineering or economic decisions. Wow, that's a wrinkle that I didn't know about. In other words, they charge you and customers, ratepayers, for their incompetence. But if there's some, literally incompetence and continued incompetence, but then when there's a huge customer that leaves your service area through no fault of your own, you have no way of making that up. That's a real political problem. Okay. So we've made exceptional financial decisions. We've put a huge amount of analysis, financial analysis, engineering analysis, and power demand analysis into all of our contracts. And it's not just cents per kilowatt. It's how much power can we get on every single day of the year running 20-year modeling to tell exactly whether we're going to get the power mix at the times of days that we need to be able to fulfill the obligations of our customers. And you can have two solar projects. If all the specs are identical, but based on where they land on the grid and what the actual weather profiles are for those geographies, they may have vastly different real-time economic impact to Silicon Valley clean energy. So we've done, I think, really, really well. And our bank account balance is a testament to that. We've done really, really well with procuring excellent contracts that provide real power at the times we need. Well, you should do a, like a hostile takeover. The CCA should do a hostile takeover of PG&E. Anyway, you heard it here first. All right, I was going to ask how difficult it is to work with PG&E, but you've already answered in numerous ways. Oh, no. Let me answer one question on that. You know, there are things for which PG&E is legally obligated to do. So when we started up, all of these issues have been sorted out in court. And the whole issue of transition of customer accounts and billing and connection and all of that, I was expecting it to be awful. And they were absolute angels. And so I've come to this conclusion about PG&E, which is there are a lot of great people at PG&E. Just none of them are in the management. So I said this a few times. I have an enormous amount of respect for PG&E employees who wear tool belts and I just don't trust anybody at PG&E who wears a tie. That should be a moniker that we post on our building. <laughs> okay, okay. All right. So let's kind of get into a little bit more about the power costs and you know where the, the energy is coming from. Are your costs steady throughout the year, or do they vary based on weather and demand? Your costs change, but how do you manage continuing to make revenue when the costs change and the demand changes, but you're stuck with fixed-price contracts? 
Yeah, it is an interesting world because the energy markets are exceptionally dynamic. And there are times of the day in the spring where solar is essentially free. You cannot give away your solar from your solar farm in late March on a bright sunny day throughout all of California. It's too cool for much air conditioning to be running. The electricity load in the state is literally exceeded by the generating capacity that's online in the state. And there are times when California actually sells, if not sells, gives plus money to Arizona and Nevada to take our surplus power. And so that's one end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum, you can get a fire in a gas field in San Diego, and that can so perturb the electrical system that on the wrong days, with the wrong grass fire going in some field someplace and the wrong transmission line gets shut down, power can jump up to hundreds of dollars a megawatt hour, and even more than that on an hourly basis. And we are required to provide long-term megawatts like megawatts per year, but we're also required to provide resource adequacy all the way down to, you know, monthly and sub-monthly increments, which means we may only feel that our load is a certain amount, but we have to provide, have the potential to provide 20% more power, resource adequacy. And that gets separated up from local resource adequacy, Northern California, regional. So we are actually not just buying a megawatt. We are buying all these attributes that reflect when the power has to be delivered, where it has to be delivered, and how much has to be delivered. So and just and so to kind of put that, you mentioned a hundred dollars per megawatt hour, and you know my bill says kilowatt hour. So that's like a dollar a kilowatt hour, which is three times more, or thirty-three times more, really, than what it costs to generate on a normal yeah, sunny day. When you get to the instantaneous prices of power on bad days, and these fires in California cause lots of problems when they shut down transmission lines because you run into congestion. Even if you're producing the power, you know, say in Kings County, can you actually get it delivered to Northern California if certain transmission lines are shut down? So how do we manage all of this risk? So we actually have a huge hedging operation. A lot of our, what should look like a fixed rate price has got a hedge built into it. So if prices go crazy, we are still price protected. However, that means we are paying more for that energy than just the raw cost of the energy on a nominal basis. But you have to hedge yourself against all these unknown risks. So it's basically like you got in, hedging is an insurance policy when things go haywire. You just pay more on the average, but then when it goes crazy, you've got somebody to back you up and cover. Yeah, we're protected in the way the pricing comes through. We also have congestion rights hedges. So think of it this way, right? We have rights to certain capacity on certain transmission lines. And if things go haywire, people have to pay us money to be able to distribute their power on those transmission lines for literally by the hour, by the day. And we have congestion revenue rights, as they're called, on all sorts of transmission lines throughout the state of California. And that's part of the energy system that CalISO has put in place to sort of keep the grid stable. And these are the economic tools that are done to do that. And so we run into situations where if we can't transmit power, 
So it's costing us more locally. It's costing somebody else more to be transmitting their power, and they have to pay us to do it because we own the congestion revenue rights. Okay, so how can batteries address the variability in terms of uh, cost and supply of power? Yeah, RCCA figured out pretty quickly that solar by itself is becoming more and more uneconomical. At times, solar is not an asset. And what we felt was we needed to be able to move the power that's being produced at noon to distribute it onto the grid at 4 o'clock. And when you look at the peak demand, the hardest time in California is between 4 and 6, when all the sun goes down and everybody switches from work to home the energy to draw actually goes up and our ability to produce clean power goes down. And so what's happening is every power plant in the state that has a high variability is being like cranked up at five o'clock. So the dirtiest power is coming online to meet that need. And so what we've done is for the last two and a half years, and we were the first CCA in California to go out to bid for this, uh, we do solar plus storage projects. When it was proposed by our board, the staff said, well, we can do it, but it's going to be expensive and hard to get. And our first proposal, we got a request for proposal. We got 46 separate proposals, of which we picked the best three, maybe it's the best four, to provide solar plus storage. And anybody I know that's putting solar on their house, the CPUC is changing the rate structure next year. And everybody's going to pay peak rates from 4 o'clock to 9 o'clock. If you want to make use of your solar, you need to put, I think, four hours. You may have a better answer when you do your analysis, a better answer. But you can't do solar now without some sort of storage to at least time shift you within the day. Yep, that's what 60 or 70% of our customers are doing. And it's just for both the economic reasons of time shifting your energy use and then also just the, you're resilient, you got backup power. But you know, on the EV2 rate, you may be on that, I'm on that. It's 47 cents from 4 p.m. to 9 p.m. And most of the rest of the day, it's only 16 cents. So it kind of turned things on its head. But when you have batteries, I have 20 kilowatt hours of battery storage, not that much, but it works. My batteries get me really pretty much all the way through, usually to midnight. And, you know, even when I've got some heating going. So that's definitely the way to go. Yeah, the batteries are a super critical item right now. Again, solar in March and April, they're actually not really helping. They're actually hurting. And new solar farms have to be curtailable. They have to be able to turn them off the grid. Now, if you've invested in a solar farm and it can't deliver power, it's not getting revenue and the economics go out the window. So the only way you can be viable with solar now is to have storage. And again, when all the rates change for everybody, if you put solar in at your home and you haven't put the battery stuff with it, the economics are going to turn really sour, I believe. So I can't stress it strongly enough, get battery. And then you mentioned the second half. Because we have an unreliable grid, having your ability to run locally, uh, that level of resilience is super critical. Yep, yep. All right, so... Now, we, let me give one more comment. Oh, sure. Just storage statewide is a large issue. And so the CCAs in California, Northern California, have all band together. We're creating a JPA, which is a JPA of CCAs. And we are putting out RFPs for long-term storage. 
think of everything you've ever heard or think of old school pumped hydro, large battery installations that could give six hours to 48 hours worth of storage. But industrial scale storage on the grid is going to be a necessary item in the next five to 10 years to help the grid remain stable with all this clean but variable energy that's appearing. So that kind of touches on my next question is, you know, where should the batteries be? Should these batteries be a pg and substation? Should they be at, you know, Silicon Valley clean energy facilities? Or should they be at customer sites, homes and businesses? Yeah, I got to give the all of the above answer. And some stuff is very interesting. If you look at storing energy, you can put it into a battery and there's a certain amount of efficiency. You lose power going in, you lose power going out. If you store energy in pumped hydro, pumping it from a low reservoir to a high reservoir when you have surplus and then running it back through the hydro station when you need the power, that has a certain energy loss too. But we actually have the ability here with San Luis Reservoir, a mere $2 billion project, It already is a pumped hydro facility, but it could be made 20 times larger, and it would provide sufficient capacity for the entire Bay Area. In economics, it would probably match batteries. But to do something on that huge of a scale requires an unprecedented amount of money. Commercial grade, you know, if you could do a giant building full of batteries, that is probably cheaper on a megawatt hour than I could do in my garage here at home. But again, I got to say, there is a certain sense of safety when you know if the power goes out, you can still run the heater. You can still get hot water. You can still have your lights on. Our power was out for four days last time, and it was loads of fun for the first hour, but it was quite downhill after that. So there's a strong case to have batteries at home. Yep, it definitely makes sense. The other thing that I like about deploying a lot of little batteries is it's more reliable, more resilient. It can be done a lot faster, and the customers can finance it. You can get a bank loan to put the batteries in, and it's not some enormous issue about you know figuring out how to add capacity at a hydro at a hydro station. So okay, yeah. So we have entered into an agreement at Silicon Valley Clean Energy for local storage at home under this moniker of creating a virtual power plant. And the big theory there is that if you had a few thousand customers, all of which had batteries at home, all of which got some sort of incentive or price break to install those batteries, under the agreement when we needed the power, we could draw on their batteries in sort of a virtual power plant way we can actually help smooth the grid out. So we can use a personal local resource for which you got a discount and we can solve sort of a regional grid problem with that. So Silicon Valley did a, you know, lights on Silicon Valley is what we've called it, but it's a virtual power plant. And again, you can get a discount of $1,250 up front. But our goal is to figure out how to install four megawatts of battery power to give us this ability to, you know, feed the grid during those critical times. Well, that's 2,000, 20 kilowatt hour batteries. That's doable. We've put in a few hundred batteries, and we're also looking at how to connect these together with partners, either new or existing partners, so we can provide those VPP services, you know, through Silicon Valley Clean Energy. Yeah, we're looking at three to 4,000 multifamily homes or 1,500 single-family homes, right? This is not 
future technology, cutting edge. This is today, right? These are things that we can and we are actively doing today. And so I talk to some people and they look at me like, oh, that's going to be in our future someday. And I have to remind people so many things are happening right now. You know, solar farms with four hours of battery storage is not a cutting edge thing. Two and a half years ago, we put out our first request for proposal. People had to look at it. But now, you know, you practically can't build a solar farm unless you have a storage plan. So as we here at Cinnamon Energy have been digging into these VPPs and how that would work, the good thing is the hardware is there, the inverters are there, the demand is there, the communications infrastructure is there. You know, we're kind of missing only one thing, which Silicon Valley is really, really good at, which is the software and the apps that will kind of coordinate all this. And that's what a lot of companies are working on. I think it was harder to get to the point where the hardware was easy to install and cost-effective. Now we just got to finish the software and make it reliable. But we're going to be there in a few years. Yeah, I have really high confidence. I think this virtual power plant concept brings so many benefits to people. And there's an economics and an education, bit of education that has to go on around this as well. But yeah, I see a day when maybe it's our batteries in our garage. Maybe we actually will have a smarter car someday. We can actually also use the batteries in our car. But distributed storage and self-reliance on your own hardware, I think is going to be where most homes are going to be in 10 years. Yep, yep. Well, that's where your home is almost there and my home is almost there. As soon as we get the VPP going, we'll be there. So that's oh, yeah. a huge progress. Okay, let's change gears a little bit and talk about building electrification. How does Silicon Valley Clean Energy support these statewide building electrification initiatives? Yeah, so this is part of what makes the CCA unique, which is we do make money and we have reserves. We have an investment grade credit rating, which we're proud of. But we also have money to invest in programs throughout the community. And Silicon Valley Clean Energy has led the way with what we call a decarbonization roadmap. So we moved our electricity to carbon-free on an annual basis. We have aggressive strategies to try and move to carbon-free on a by-the-minute basis, right? Because being able to provide power 24-7 is an interesting challenge if you want it to be all clean. After you've solved the electricity part of the puzzle, you have two issues to look at. Where is the rest of greenhouse gas? Transportation. Well, the state's kind of already laid down a, hey, we're going with uh, all electric vehicles in 15 years. I just, for the record, everybody should know. In the last three years, more electric cars have been put into service in Santa Clara County, carrying more people, more daily boarding, more passenger miles than the entire Santa Clara County bus system, express bus system, light rail, and Caltrain combined, right? So electrification of transportation is not a future item. We're not waiting for electric buses. It is happening now, as we speak today. All right, so then what's the last chunk of the pile? Well, what are we doing with all of our homes and home heating? That is a challenge. So Silicon Valley Clean Energy advocated for, and most of the cities in Santa Clara County have adopted what we call REACH codes. And so for new construction, there are now restrictions on gas. In Saratoga, we looked at it 
and 87% of the carbon emissions are from hot water and space heating. And so for new construction, we have banned natural gas as the energy source for those two items. So you would use a heat pump hot water heater, for which we do offer rebates, but they actually are more efficient than even the best on-demand gas water heaters are. So to and, that, so before you talk about the HVAC, oh yeah. so heat pump water heaters. So I took advantage of the, the rebate they had in San Jose last year. I put one in. Well, I, I signed up. I got the first rebate in the city and I couldn't find a plumber that knew I was talking about. I said, well, I want to put in a heat pump water heater. And they said, oh yeah, flash heaters. We do them all the time. I said, no, no, no. So I had to find the right model, specify. I said, this is what you're going to put in. And the plumber was like, Okay, which is just like a regular hot water tank, except instead of a gas line, it's just got an electric line. So he put it in. I had to get the thing configured, which wasn't that big a deal. Last week, I looked at my energy usage of that heat pump water heater in September and October. It used 50 kilowatt hours of electricity in each month. 50 kilowatt hours. So if I were paying, you know, regular retail rates, that would be $15 to heat hot water. That's really low. But I have solar. So on solar, I'm paying $5 a month for my hot water. And, you know, take you know, a bunch of showers a day. And I can kind of kill myself because, all right, I'm paying $5 a month to heat hot water. My water bill was $377 for the last two months. <laughs> You can see the places where it's free market and the places where the CPUC has helped you out. Yep. I will say this, Barry, and you've seen this as well. If I go to, say, Baltimore, Maryland, where natural gas is actually a relatively new phenomenon, and I go to Home Depot there, they have every model of hot water heater that's electric that you've ever seen. Fancy heat pump, cheap heat pump, resistive heating. And way in the back, they have one natural gas hot water heater if you really have to get it. We in California have been indoctrinated with natural gas since the 60s. We're cooking with gas now, right? I remember this on the morning cartoons as a kid for some reason. So all of our infrastructure, all of our crafts and trades have figured out how to do gas. And this electric thing is just weird. But it is not weird and it's not new. And there are other places in the United States that aren't known for their green credentials, right? Where electric hot water heating is just considered normal. Yeah. It's also cheaper, right? So with the heat pump. Now, how does this extend to space heating, HVAC? So we haven't offered a rebate yet for that. But we have, you know, within the city of Saratoga, and again, almost most of the cities in Santa Clara County and the potential have done this, space heating needs to switch to heat pump also. And I've run into the same experiences that that you have on both water and space heating. Everybody acts like space heating is some cutting edge sort of thing. It's not. We all have air conditioners. It's an air conditioner. They just run the cycle the other way. And so you literally already have the equipment. You already have the infrastructure. It is not foreign to be heating your space with a heat pump rather than with a natural gas. Yeah. Let me give you a story about my pool. I wanted and I insisted on a heat pump heater for my pool. And I only use it for the hot tub, but it matters tremendously to my wife to be able to get into a hot tub that's not 70 degrees. And I went around and around with several different pool installers, and I couldn't get anybody to agree to install this 
and told, I one guy said he would do it, but only if I would install a new gas line next to my electric wow. heat pump cool heater. And the reason he said that is he said he's not going to do all this work and tear up my yard because he knows that in a year I'm going to want to have gas. Yeah. Again, I, it's the tradespeople. Well, so what we did at Silicon Valley Clean Energy, we actually offered an incentive for contractors to take a training class that we set up with the local college on decarbonization and how to install electric appliances. And if you complete this program, we're actually paying the contractors to take the class. That sounds pretty cool. So your experiences are exactly the same as mine with my pool heater. I looked all over for heat pump water heater for the pool. And I did find a couple of companies that did it. I've got some friends in the industry. But, you know, they don't install them here in California. They have them in Florida, but they don't have them in California. And the reason why they have them in Florida, too, first, electricity is a lot cheaper. But, you know, if you have a lot of solar, who cares? Second, these heat pump water heaters work really well in a humid environment. And they don't right. work very well if it's cool and dry. And so my wife and I, we like to hot tub too. And, you know, typically after dinner, we'll say, okay, let's, you know, heat up the hot tub because we don't leave it hot. We don't use it all during the week. And with a gas heater, I mean, I hate to say it, but it's the only thing I use gas for. It heats up in like 45 minutes. If I were to use the heat pump, it would take like four or five hours to heat that thing up and it would gobble up electricity. And so it's just, we're somehow we're not there yet and might take another four or five years till heat pumps get more cost effective or everybody has so much solar so that they're giving it away when you want to heat the thing up. Yeah, mine had to be imported as well. And these are just, we're talking about air-based heat pumps. I could barely get my air one installed, but you're right. If I was worried about my performance in January and February, I could have done a ground loop system. But I consider myself lucky I could get the one that I have installed. And you're right, it had to get special ordered and it took an extra two weeks to get something. I can get the gas version in the same day, but it took two weeks to get the electric one. Yeah, yeah, it's a challenge. Okay. So back on decarbonization, there's the challenge in general, right? Induction cooking. If you buy a quality induction stove, you will find they get the highest reports in consumer reports. Uh, Chefs that use them love them because you have very precise and repeatable control and a huge dynamic range. They're safer, they're easier, but yet we've all been taught that professionals cook on gas. And so how do you get a gas stove out of somebody's house? How do we make this mindset change? And this is going to be the challenge over the next two decades is to teach people that electricity with solar on your roof, batteries in your garage, is a better answer for you and for your environment than trying to do all this stuff with natural gas. Oh, yeah. So how much progress do you think we can make in terms of electrification, you know, by 2030 or 2035? I think it's going to be pretty slow. I don't want to sound pessimistic, but, you know, a city like Saratoga, in that period of time, if we have the largest housing boom that we've had in 40 years, say 20% of our houses will be new. Okay. And the other 80% are going to be old school. And so it's the rate at which you replace appliances. The practical reality is, is when your hot water heater goes out and the guy shows up and says, oh, I can get you an electric one in two weeks, even if it's the world's best, most efficient heat pump hot water heater. Oh, and by the way, I got to schedule an electrician because I got to put a 20 amp 220 circuit in and that'll take another week. 
you can't explain to your wife and kids how they're going to be without hot water for three weeks so well, you can do the right thing. It's worse, that Howard. Is, Howard, it's worse than that because if you have a hundred or hundred twenty-five amp electric service, sometimes you just can't electrify those things. So you got two weeks to order the heat pump. You got another week to get the electrician in there. And guess what? You have three to six months for PG&E to get around to upgrading your electrical service. And that drives me absolutely nuts. I think that's done on purpose. We do offer a rebate if you're less than 200 amps, you know, an add-on thing, $1,500. The inertia of the system works against decarbonization of the built environment. I think, you know, cars wear out and we replace cars. So in 10 years, half the cars can be electric. That's easy. But it's impossible for me to see, and we're continuing to push this envelope. Maybe we'll get progress. But in 10 years, I do not see half of the hot water heaters becoming electric hot water heaters. Well, Um, Howard, it's not only the inertia. It's the profit motivation of incumbent gas utilities and electric utilities to inhibit this work. So, you know, they'll just make it take a lot of many, many months and cost a lot of money. Whereas, you know, the car companies like, hey, you know, they were a little bit slow, but now they'll sell you another car and they're happy to do so. You know, natural gas is interesting. It's power dense. I understand that. But 10% of the natural gas delivered in the retail space, meaning to us consumers at home, is leaked into the atmosphere. We have leaky pool equipment and leaky furnaces and the way we run our stoves. Well, 10%, that seems pretty small. Some studies say it's even 5%. The problem is with the greenhouse gas, it's 37 times more impactful than the carbon. So we're having this huge greenhouse gas impact by trying to distribute natural gas down to us lay people in our homes. The second thing which nobody seems to realize is if you have a natural gas stove in your house, you're twice as likely to have an asthmatic person in your house. There are so many health issues in cooking with natural gas. Tip of the day, never turn on your stove, even for a small pot of hot water, without turning on your fan. And if you have one of these situations where you have a gas cooktop and you don't have a vent to the outside, they actually recommend, right in the manual, that you open a window whenever you're running your stove. So natural gas is bad for the environment, but it's also bad for people's health. We got to get this out of the homes. And to do that, we have to change the hearts and minds of the contractors who are installing and the hearts and minds of people. If enough people call up and say, I want an induction cooktop, people will figure out how to install induction cooktops. Yep, yep. And we did the same thing, and it took a little bit of time to convince my wife, but now she's delighted, and I found that it makes an even better ribeye grilled steak on a cast iron pan on the induction cooktop than it does outside. So we're super, super happy. Oh, yeah. Yep. Yep. All right. Well, that's all the time we have on this week's energy show. Howard, it was an absolute delight to have you here with a combination of your enthusiasm and your knowledge and your passion for making these changes. So thanks for joining us and thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in. If you missed any of today's energy show, you can always go to our website at cinnamon.energy and listen to the podcasts.